0: better way to do this Let me show you a better way Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 24th, 2018, and this is episode... 2225 of the Survival Podcast as uh, we rock along. Uh, and uh, we've got a good one for you today. It's Thursday. This is a listener call show. This is where you pick up the phone, you call in 86665. 866-65. Think 86665, T-H-I-N-K, or you can use the Speak Pipe. The way to use the Speak Pipe, go to the SurvivalPodcast.com, go to the contact page, and you'll see the Speak Pipe. And you can mash a button there, and as long as you've got a microphone on your device, you can leave me a message through the magic of the interwebs. Formula to get on a show like this: ask your question or make your point in one sentence immediately. You can say hi, this is so and so from so and so or what have you. Thanks for the show, whatever. But like, really get to the point really quick. One sentence that defines your actual question. They give me the details. If you do that, you'll have a better experience. You'll be more likely to get on the air. Lots of people did that this week. Got some good calls lined up for you. We have a call on getting started blending your own teas. We have plants for a seasonally wet ditch. I'll do what I can with that one. Building a fishless aquaponic systems, a.k.a. hydroponics. And I'm going to talk about where I think the kind of line between fishless aquaponics and hydroponics is. Uh, dealing with competitors in the microgreens mafia. Uh, getting assistance with earthworks design from the Ag Extension Office and some other resources. A follow-up from one listener to another on a prior question. Uh, Making your own sparkling water, choosing a walk, and your stove matters when you're doing that, and thoughts on the Farmer's Almanac, and a question about whether I would ever venture into commercial mead making. All of that and more, just a moment before we get into it. Let's take a look at a year in history. We are up to the year 132, and we have an appearance by the amazing, the famous Alex Shrugged, who did this segment for us for... Over a thousand years of history. We have the third Jewish revolt contributed by David Verne as our subject. The Jewish War for Liberation gets kicked off by a charismatic leader named Sarman by Kuk Abba. Abba. He launches a surprise attack on the 10th frontness a legion garrisoning Jerusalem, liberating the city and inflicting heavy casualties on the Roman legions. There were about 200 or 20,000 Roman soldiers in Judea at the time, but they can't subdue the rebels. Quintius Rufus, a harsh Roman governor of Judea, disappears from history. It's unknown whether he died or not. Reinforcements are sent from neighboring provinces, but the reinforcements from Egypt are ambushed and destroyed. With much of Judea in rubble hands, Bar Kokhba declares the creation of an independent Jewish state with himself as the leader, and he is hailed as the Jewish Messiah of prophecy. By the end of the year, the Roman forces numbered about 80,000 men and the rebels between two hundred to 400,000 men. The rebels began switching from guerrilla tactics to open warfare and inflicted several defeats on the Romans. My take by David Verne. The situation in Judea was spiraling out of control and the Romans were facing the most severe revolt in several decades. The new Jewish state issued coins and edicts with the year one being the first year of independence In the end, the Romans will reconquer the province, but it will cost dearly in time, money, and blood. Uh, My take by Alex Shrug. Simon was far more than a charismatic leader, though he was that. Rabbi Akiva had declared Simon to be the long-awaited Messiah. The Galileans refused to join in the Third Jewish Rebellion, having been decimated in the previous rebellion, the one where Jesus of Nazareth was so figured so prominently. The fighting had been so intense that Hadrian refused the normal greeting to the Roman Senate. I and my troops are well. They were not well. On the Jewish side, Simon was beheaded and Rabbi Akva was burned at the stake. All supporters of Simon were killed. How did they know who was a supporter? Simon had required that the supporter cut off a little finger. This guaranteed victory or death. After the war, Jewish writing often refers to Simon as Bar Kosba, the liar. The war caused the death of so many Jewish scholars that it was feared that the Mishnah, the Jewish oral law, might be lost. So what had been passed down by word of mouth from generation to generation was written down beginning around the year 200 of the Common Era and eventually became expanded to become the Talmud. So it's a little extra history there and perspective by Alex Shrugged in the year 132 A.D. Sounds like an awful war, doesn't it? I mean, there was no guns and no smart weapons. This was uh, man-to-man, blade-to-blade, spear-to-spear, sword-to-shield. The type of fighting that was done at the time. Anyway, with that... Let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Again, your calls. First call is on blending your own teas and kind of getting started in the world of tea and coming over from the world of coffee. Hey, Jack. I was wondering if you could recommend some different tea blends for a new tea drinker. The details are that I've been a big-time coffee drinker all of my life, but the time has come for me to cut back a little bit on the coffee, and so I'm wanting to experiment with some different tea blends to find something that I hopefully enjoy as much as I enjoy a cup of coffee. I know you're a tea drinker, so I wondered if you could give me some ideas for some different blends or or different things that I can use to make tea, either herbs that I can grow myself or commercially available tea blends that I can buy from reputable sources. So any pointers you can give me would be appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, I've, I've always been a tea drinker, but um about a year and some change ago, I realized that I was drinking two to three pots of coffee a day and decided I needed to break that addiction. And I am drinking coffee again. I drink both coffee and tea now, but I've gone to drinking coffee from a French press, and that has slowed my coffee consumption because when you want more, you have to go actually make more each time, and I think that's probably a good thing for me. Uh, I still, in many ways, do prefer tea. Um, When I drink a lot of coffee, I do get a little bit amped up, maybe beyond where I should, so I think it's a good thing for people to do. I still like some caffeine. So one of the first things I would advise you is to give some different green teas a try. Um, Specifically, the one I recommend, and there's a category at tea Spaz of all the stuff that I recommend for Uh, herbs, tea, and coffee. And there's some stuff in there that's just more of a cooking herb, but most of the stuff can be or is related in some way to the making of tea. And I'll have a link in the show notes to that subcategory at Teaspats for you where you can check out a lot of this stuff. And one of the items you'll find is a, a green tea made by a company called Davidson's. And I'm a big believer in not spending money that you don't have to spend. And so, I guess the only downfall would be most of the Davidson product is sold in one-pound bags. That's great because you know usually they're somewhere between eight and fifteen dollars for a pound, and that makes a lot of tea. You you cannot buy tea in boxes with you know little packaged bags and get anywhere near that kind of performance. Uh, all the Davidson products are also organic and uh, fair trade, so I, I like that as well. But they have a, a green tea called Gunpowder Green. And it is my favorite green tea. It's dense, so if you're blending it with other things, you use less of it than you would if you were using more of a, a leaf tea. Uh, gunpowder refers to the structure of the leaf that's actually rolled into these little balls. Uh, kind of look like never, no gunpowder I've ever seen because quite, they're quite big grains even for old school black powder. But that's what they call it. So it weighs a lot for its volume. Uh, but it makes a great green tea. It's probably my favorite green tea. They also, uh, Davidson's has a Earl Grey that you can buy by the pound. And Earl Grey is a fantastic uh, uh, tea. Uh, Earl Grey is, is misted with uh, oil of bergamot, which is uh, a variety of orange grown in Italy and France. And it gives it this kind of velvety, uh, it's, I want to say it's not really a flavor, it's like a velvety texture within the tea, almost a butteriness. And those are two great teas just, you know, to be able to buy a tea commercially and, you know, enjoy yourself. When we start talking about herbs, uh, you know, some of my favorites are chamomile, mint, spearmint, ginger. Uh, These are all great things to experiment. Let's talk about a few of them. Number one, just regular plain old peppermint is probably if, you know, if you said, Jack, for the next month, you can only have one thing for tea, uh, and it can't be a, a commercial product. It has to be something, you know, an herb that you just make a tea out of. What would it be? I would say mint. Uh, mint always tastes good. It's always easy to do. It's easy to grow. It's probably the number one tea plant that you can grow anywhere, anytime, any place. A couple pots of mint will produce more mint than you'll ever need to make tea out of. Um, you can experiment with how much you like, depending on how you sweeten it or don 't sweeten it and uh, what you 'll find with mint is by sweetening it, you get a lot more of the mint flavor it 's a lot like adding salt, I think most teas adding some sort of a sweetener and I like to use liquid stevia because it 's zero calorie and it's it 's easy to use and while i don 't really care for it in coffee at all uh, it, it's it 's fantastic in just about every tea i 've ever tried with it so uh, I usually make that with a French press, but that can be as easy as grab a few sprigs, stick it in a teacup, pour hot water on it. Uh, You really don't mint such a large leaf plant, and if you're using fresh mint, you really don't need any kind of a strainer or French press or anything like that. Throw a little hot water on it. You can drink it with the mint in there. If you want it out, you take a fork and pull it out or a spoon and pull it out. Uh, It would definitely be the first thing I would recommend that anybody grow that wants to be able to provide tea from you know something off their own property. I also mentioned uh, bergamot, uh, which is this uh, orange. There's a plant called bee balm. It's also referred to as wild bergamot. They are not related in any way, this orange and this bergamot. For a long time, I thought Earl Grey was actually made with oil from the lemon balm plant because there is such a a common flavor profile and that texture profile I'm talking about. So bee balm might be another plant to go ahead and grow. Uh, It's a pretty plant. It is in the mint family. It doesn't taste anything like mint, though. It tastes like bergamot. Uh, It is excellent with mint, and those, again, are, since they're largely plants, you can basically grab half and half, you know, just cut right off the plant, throw it in a cup, and and make your, uh, your tea. Another herb that I'm incredibly fond of that's kind of rich and buttery, and makes an awesome tea by itself, or mixed with other things, is chamomile. Now, I'm going to get emails from people like, i got chamomile growing like weeds. I don't know what you're talking about. But personally, uh, I have not had a lot of success growing chamomile in my climate. And even when I've had some success, I don't get a lot. And so to me, it makes sense to uh, to get your chamomile uh, by buying it commercially. And it's a relatively small flower. Uh, so it's kind of a pain in the butt to you know dry and make teeth, f- in my experience anyway. So, um, I would prefer to just buy it. It's very affordable. The uh, brand I recommend is a company called for- Frontier uh, Organics. Frontier Co op is also what they're called. Um, again, all organic product. They sell a 20 pound bag of chamomile flowers for 21 bucks with free shipping on Amazon. I, I can't overstate how much chamomile there is in a pound. And this may be one that even if you don't go with a whole flower, you might want to go get a plain chamomile tea from the store. Uh, you know, a small package or something and try it. Because if you end up with a pound of chamomile and you don't like chamomile, about the only thing you can use it otherwise then would be to feed it, in, you know, include chamomile tea in your bee feed uh, or use it as a, a mildew preventer when you're growing microgreens. I don't know. I guess you can make uh, a sal- herbal salve or something out of it. But you'd probably be upset with me if you bought a pound of it and didn't like it. And chamomile is one of those things that people really like Or they tend to not like it. It's kind of like the cilantro of teas, even though it tastes nothing like cilantro. But what I mean by that is like half of all people think cilantro is the greatest thing ever, and half of all people think it tastes like feet. And I I find chamomile kind of that way. It's a love it or hate it type of thing. So I I would recommend that you you try it before you go out and buy a a pound of it. But if you like it, it is, again, great tea by itself, great blend. Uh, a thing that a lot of people don't think about making tea from are some of the other herbs that aren't aren't leafy herbs but root herbs, and ginger is among my favorites. And you can you know go to the store and buy a big old honking root of ginger. You can bust a few nubs off of it, and you can grow it. Just if it's all, it's organic, so it hadn't been treated with anything. You put it in some more moist soil. just You know, so the top of it's just barely sticking out, and it'll start growing. And you know, in a, in a single season, uh, you can grow a lot of your own ginger. But you can go ahead and buy it from the store, uh, like a Whole Foods or Central Market or something like that's a great place to to get it because they'll always have an, an organic variety. I find that most of my grocery stores do not have an organic ginger. Uh, even though they have a lot of organic products in the produce section, they tend not to have organic ginger. Uh, just a few little slices of it, pour some hot water over it again. You don't even, unless you're making it blended with other dry herbs or something, you don't really need any kind of a tea strainer or something like that for it. Um, it's particularly good, uh, ginger is mixed with apple. And you might say, well, how am I going to make an apple tea? Dehydrated apples. And uh, so you could take a, a little uh, you know a little uh, handful, not really a handful I'm trying to think of a better w- word for it. you know, maybe a couple of tablespoons of of crumbled up um, dehydrated apple and put that into hot water with ginger and then strain that out and that would probably be a good use of a tea strainer or a French press to get the apples out. I don't know maybe you want to eat them, I don't know, uh, but that you get an amazing amount of apple flavor. Uh, from a dehydrated uh, uh, apple. Uh, In fact, in in many instances, any kind of fruit or vegetable, dehydrated releases a tremendous amount of flavor into into the thing. So that would be something maybe to look at that's a little bit different Uh, because it's not going to be like an apple cider or an apple juice or something. It's just going to have an apple flavor. And I've not done it, but just thinking about it like that with chamomile would be pretty badass. So there's just... A whole myriad of things that you can do with teas, and don't be afraid to blend a traditional tea, uh, like a green tea, with an herb. Uh, chamomile, peppermint, and green tea are fantastic together. I have a blend that uses more things than that. You can find it at the link in the show notes today. Also, do think about getting yourself, even though some of the stuff like the, 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 the mint... When I'm making mint tea from the backyard, I never get my strainer out, but... A uh, French press is a good idea, and um, the, uh, the, sh- the 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 tea strainer that I recommend, if you go to that category and just scroll down, you'll eventually find it. It's by a company called For Life, uh, and it's for making individual cups. It's F-O-R-L-I-F-E, tea infuser. They're inexpensive. They're better than any other thing on the market. There is nothing... Infinity that's as good as this for, you know, making single mugs of tea. Everything else is crap compared to the 4 Life tea infuser. So that's how, how strongly I feel about something as silly as that. And the reason is I see people buy like tea balls and stuff like that. They, they never really work well. They're hard to clean. You can't often get enough herb in them to do what you're trying to do. And the 4 Life infuser is, you know, 18 bucks. So, it might sound expensive, but you can't break it. It, it won't fail. It's impossible. It, it is a solid piece of stainless steel with a fine mesh. There's nothing, I don't know how you could break it. And it's got a little lid that fits over most of your you know, your teacup size cups as well as it sits there on the top. And what that does, and I think it's very important, is why I also like a French press is that when you first put tea in you know, any kind of urban, your volatile oils, your essential oils, immediately start to go up with the steam, which is why it smells good. But that means they also go away. Well, when you have something covering the tea while it uh, steeps, a lot of those oils at the top, and just like a little mini still, they drip back down into the tea where they belong so they can go into you, or at least go into your nose as you're consuming the tea. That's just as good. So you get more aromatic and flavorful teas if you contain it during the steep. Um, And a French press does that as well. On the French press, the one that I recommend, I did finally break it. I really need to update the picture uh, in the French press review that I have from Kitchen Supreme. They have changed the actual, all the stuff's the same, but the actual glass decanter part of it has improved immensely since I first uh, first reviewed it. Uh, it's now got a metal wrap that comes all the way up. It doesn't come apart anymore, which is a good thing. It looks like it would be harder for it to break. It has an insulated lid now, and the lid has a little divot in it. When you pour, the tea or coffee or whatever you made can come out, but if you turn it, it doesn't have that hole. That means that it does a much better job on keeping those oils in during the steep, and when you press a French press down all the way to the bottom, it actually... It's, it's not just keeping the two things separated so that you don't drink the, the sediment. It actually, because of the way the mesh is made and where the pressure works, it actually separates them from any kind of interaction with each other anymore. Water does not go back through the, the, the filter in French press. So when you make a tea or a coffee or something, you depress it all the way to the bottom and you leave it sit there, it doesn't get tannic on you. It doesn't get overly flavored, etc. So that is actually immensely improved. It's a long answer to a simple question, but uh, that's a good question, and it's a good thing to get into. You learn so much about herbalism and chemistry and cooking, etc. through blending teas, as simple as it is. Let's take another one. Hello. This is Brett C. in Middle Tennessee. I'm in zone B. Uh, I'm looking for a plant to plant in a ditch that is only wet when it rains. Details. I'm looking for something to plant in the wash that's beside the road by my property. I'm looking for something that will not get high enough for me to need to weed whack. Do you have any suggestions? So, you got a ditch that's only wet when it, ra- it rains. Um, my guess is it's probably still got a pretty good water reserve underneath it, even ditches on a pitch versus a swale tend to be places, your low-lying areas, if you drive around any farm country, dirt road, whatever, you always always notice the ditches, even in the drier parts of the year, have more growing in them than not, on stuff outside of ditches. Um, It sounds like what you really want to do is not have to maintain the daggone grass in there and not have to weed eat it or nothing. so you want something to choke everything else out, Um, and you, but you want it to be low or no maintenance. Um, depending, and you said Tennessee, so you guys have pretty good climate as far as moisture. And you, you tend not to completely dry out even during fairly long periods of drought. Now you also have some places like when I was at the Holler with Nicole there, some thin soils in that there's a lot of rock, limestone in those, those mountains, uh, and granite in some other parts of the, the state that, um, you might have a very shallow amount of soil before you hit rocks. So, I don't know how much dirt is in that ditch, but assuming there's quite a bit, a lot of things will probably survive. And one thing I saw growing everywhere uh, in Tennessee was uh, plantain. And it, your ditch probably has plantain in it. If you wanted more, though, you could just wait till the stuff goes to seed and harvest a bunch of plantain seed. Uh, and then throw it all over in that ditch and help it reproduce itself. Then you have a medicinal, you have a low-growing herb, you have a large-leafed herb that is going to do a good job of choking out other plants. Uh, If it does stay moist enough, because if there's not enough moisture, it won't make it, but uh, comfrey would be another good plant. and I would look for some kind of a polyculture here, because you're going to have microclimates within microclimates in a ditch. You got two sides. Those two sides have two solar aspects. You got the bottom of the ditch, you got the sides of the ditch. You got creases, you got shadows. If it bends, you got another micro. So, like, you're going to have to try to find a mixture of things that will do well in there that will each find their own little ecosystem to hang out And And you want them all to be things that don't get so high you have to worry about them every year. So, comfrey would be another one and also useful in a, a medicinal that goes along with plantain. Uh, clovers. I would look for a mix of clovers, but like Dutch white, New Zealand white would be great initial clovers to try, but things like strawberry O'Connor's and crimson clover and some of your sub-clovers like tatka sub-clover would also be things to look at to kind of get that polyculture going. None of your clovers get more than about 8 to 10 inches high in general, so you don't really have to mow that, right? It just kind of, and 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 you got all these little flowers and bees and medicinals and stuff going on there. Now, if, if the view's not a problem, and assuming there's enough soil that, that that moisture trap is down there, and it was me in a climate like you have, I would plant the whole damn thing with elderberries, and let it be like a slow-flow marsh when it rains. Uh, the elderberries will spread. Uh, they naturally grow in ditches. You see in places where, where elderberry is native uh, and, and does well on its own. You find a ditch, you usually find mulberry growing in it, um, and there's many. I'm, I'm sorry, elderberry, not mulberry. Uh, elderberries growing in it, and generally most ditches, you can still, you'll still get water to flow through them when you have a rain event. Um, that's what I would do, but it may not work for you because you're talking about something that gets high, you know, almost like small tree size is what an elderberry shrubs eventually get like. But they have so much medicinal value. Uh, and And they also make a pretty damn good mead. elderberries make a damn good mead uh, that or a wine right so that would be something else that you might consider, but it really doesn't match what you asked for. Nothing to do with elderberries is you can make fritters out of the flowers. The flowers form is like white flour a little flour pancake. you can cut that whole thing off and you can look up how to make a fried fritter with those. It's pretty daggone good. Uh, and if you have a lot of elderberry, then you probably don't need all the berries, and you can take a few of those a year for a real treat. Uh, but, again, I don't know that that would work You might because you sit and you're worried about height. So when you first started asking the question, was the first thing in my mind was elderberry, and as soon as you said height, I went, not crap. Well, it probably won't work then, but it's something you could consider. But, I mean, my base, again, would be a mixture of uh, uh, clo- fl- flowering clovers, plantain, comfrey, uh, would be the, the first place I would head with that. You could also look at ivies, um, jewelweed. You can probably find lots of that around native. Just watch out for the poison ivy. It's probably growing next to it uh, in your shadier spots within it. If you have shady spots, another great uh, ground cover and tree cover and everything cover uh, that's just pretty damn bulletproof as long as it gets enough moisture. So, again, how deep, deep the soil is there, uh, English ivy. Um, a temporary ground cover that will work in there would be things like um, uh white cass oat, uh and different cereal grains. will often do really good in that type of environment, believe it or not. But then the problem is if you plant too much of them, they choke everything else out. And when they die at the end of their life cycle, they leave bare spots. So you should be aware of that. Anyway, with that, let's take another one. This one on aquaponics, hydroponics, fishless aquaponics. How do we call this thing? Hi, Jack. Quick one for you. Can I build your indoor aquaponics setup that you built this winter as a hydroponic system? We got our feet wet this winter with hydroponics, pun intended always, and now we have the confidence to push on. we am still hesitant to jump into the aquaponics due to the fish health complexity. Ultimately, I see us moving into aquaponics, but uh, baby steps until then. Uh, Thank you, Jack, uh, Casey in Mississippi. Well, yeah, you can certainly build that system and run it fishless. In, in all honesty, right now, it is. Um, I took that same 250-gallon uh, tank or 300-gallon 300, 300 tank, and I'd, I'm in the middle of a build with it right now. I finally have it running. It has two 50-gallon ebb and flow beds across the back of it. And I'm beginning now the plumbing. And I just, this morning, since it's nicer to work here in the mornings than the afternoons, I went out this morning and, and poured uh, some concrete footers for the first uh, wicking bed that's going to be tied into it. And it's running right now with nothing but some garret juice, some liquid kelp, uh, and some fish emulsion poured in the water. And has a bit of a fish smell. Uh, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. There's other ways you can do that. Um to me, the difference between fishless aquaponics and just doing hydroponics is that you're actually creating a nitrate nitrite cycle with fishless aquaponics, where with hydroponics, you just dump fertilizer in. I mean, you can do aquaponics and dump miracle grow in, or I'm sorry, hydroponics and just dump miracle grow in. Now, it's not the most environmentally friendly form of fertilizer, but it ain't gonna kill you, and it will work. And the the beauty of no matter what you're doing, if you're doing it without fish, is if your plants look nutrient deficient, you just add more. The bad part is when your plants are nutrient deficient, you have to pay more for inputs and add more. So to me, when we're doing kind of a fishless cycling, when we're using things that actually are creating a breakdown, then we're still doing an aquaponics thing. We're just using inputs to create the cycle. There's also other options in there. If we are using something like ebb and flow beds, we can put a crap ton of worms in them. We just go to Mr. Jim's Worm Farm or some other place and get us some worms. And I like to use both nightcrawlers and red wigglers. And then we can feed the worms. And then we're doing, I guess it would be wormponics, but it's an aquatic system, so it's aquaponics. And they'll live right in your ebb and flow beds. They're, they're happy to be in there. And all you do is throw some, you throw some fish feed or any kind of uh, feed that worms would be interested in on top of your, your beds. And they'll come up mostly at night and they'll eat that stuff. And and it's a, actually a good way to keep your beds in a good rate of flow. Because the worms are going to eat all of the stuff that usually clogs up everybody else's beds. Where you see them like once every couple of years, they have to rip them apart and redo them. If you have a bunch of worms in there, that's not going to happen because they eat all those solids. They come from fish in a fish-based system. So those are some other ways that you can look at doing it. Um, Rob Bob uh, has a video from about a year ago where he set up a system for his parents. Uh, that's a fishless system, at least at the time it was. And all they were actually doing is throwing some fish food in it with no fish. They were throwing it right down on the side of the bell siphon and putting in a little bit of liquid or, uh, kelp meal every once in a while for the micronutrients and minerals. And like a tablespoon, you know, once a week or something like that, in a fairly sizable system, and it did pretty dead gone well. So you could do that. I have a link to that video for you in the show notes. If you're gonna do wicking beds, it doesn't matter. I mean that's the that's what I keep trying to explain to people about aquaponics. If you're gonna do wicking beds, then you could just have water flowing around in a circle with some aquatic plants in it. Now, here's the one thing to think about with fishless aquaponics. And I didn't even think about this. I have gotten so freaking spoiled because all my systems have fish in them. Mosquitoes. Yeah, I was kind of happy when I was building. If you've seen the videos, but I'm I'm working on this this 300-gallon build right now with this Rubbermaid tank, and um, I hadn't even got the build started yet. I just threw some water in the tank to make sure it held level with some weight in it, and it had been there a day, and there were water beetles f- swimming around in this water. Well, now I got it running and cycling. I got some cattails in it. I dumped some garret juice in it. I got it all. Plants are starting to come around. And I was out there yesterday look in there, and it's a little wigglers wiggling around in there. Well, I gotta go get me some mosquito dunks, or I gotta put some fish in there. And if you got fish in your system, you will not have a mosquito problem. Your system, but if you do not have fish in there, you will have a mosquito problem. Now, you mentioned my indoor systems. I don't know if you're talking about doing this indoors or outdoors. And uh, so that's, that's up to you. I will say this. I did an indoor system in the wintertime to overwinter fish and as an educational project. I do not like indoor systems for aquaponics or hydroponics unless there's a compelling reason because I don't want to pay to light expensive lights year-round when there's this big orange ball that comes up in the sky every day and provides us plenty of light. So I I am not really big on indoor, and I would certainly look at something more like heated greenhouses before doing true indoor so that we can use that magic, wonderful solar thing that comes up every day called sun. Uh, But I'm not going to tell you not to do it. I'm just just telling you kind of how I feel. It's an energy requirement that, you know, you don't really need. So it's up to you there. But, yeah, you can do this any way you want. I'll also say this, though. The only reason I'm running and cycling this thing fishless is that it's one less thing that stuff can die in while I'm on vacation next month, and i got a house sitter here. And if I were to put fish in it right now, it would probably hit the peak of fish death about the time I was leaving. And then it's one more thing for this person to worry about. And really it would be like, you know what? It doesn't matter if they die. All you do is net them out and stick them in a wicking bed so that they're fertilizer. But it just seems like it makes sense to just not have that system be that critical to running um, and, and and let them deal with the other stuff. And then by the you know, next time I go on vacation, that system will be all stabilized and what have you. But I'll put fish in it, because number one, I'll take care of the mosquitoes, but number two, it's just easy. And you talk about getting your feet wet, and then eventually, like, if you build a system like this, the only thing separating you from fish is fish. And what's going to happen if you build it, you're going to put fish in it. And it, 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 there's nothing to it. You're going to go down, if you if nothing else, you're going to go down to Petco, you go buy yourself, you know, 20 or 40 or 50 freaking goldfish, and throw them in there, and 10%, 15% of them will die, and the rest of them will live. And then you're going to go back down to Home Depot, once it stabilizes, and get yourself, you know, four, six, eight, you know, did I say Home Depot? I meant PetSmart. You know, four, six, something like that, maybe eight at the most, Coy. You're going to take your time getting them, and you're going to cherry-pick the pretty fin ones, and you're going to throw them in there. And then, you know, once every two years or so, you're going to put one on Craigslist for 100 bucks to 200 bucks, And you're going to sell it and pay for your feed and for everything you need for your system for a year. I mean, that's that's why I think koi are probably one of the greatest fish in the world for a system like this. They're beautiful. You can always sell a few off. I've had people tell me, Jack, you can only sell really perfect koi. no. I'm sorry. That's not the way that it works. There's yuppies all over the place that want great, big, stinking koi to put into their pond that they just had put in or the house it has one they just moved into that are not complete freaks about it, but they'll pay $100, $200 for a nice-looking koi all over the place. They exist. You're not going to sell 100 of them a year, but you can sell one or two. So, I mean, or you're going to go down to your local farm pond and you're going to catch you know 50 bluegill and throw them in there. You're going to have a, a meat source it isn't any more work to have fish in your system. It's actually, and I think in many ways, less work because they take care of things like you know, eating stuff and what have you. You have goldfish or koi in a system, you're not going to have an algae problem. Let me say this, though, with bluegills. They're the meanest little bastards on the planet, you know, this side of a piranha. And if you want to have goldfish or koi with bluegill, you can do it. They need to be well grown out before the bluegill are introduced. I have goldfish living with bluegill right now. Everybody gets along, but it's a big system, and everybody has little hiding spots. Um, if you put, you know, those those nine cent, eighteen cent feeder goldfish in with bluegills, they will rape them. I mean, they will just devour them, eat them, and it'll be a horrible death because they can't eat them in one bite. Right? They'll tear them to pieces. Uh, I had a koi that got into a tank that I thought I'd gotten all the bluegills out, and I didn't. And there was. About six or eight of them in there that had been hiding on me, and they literally ate the flesh off this koi. I had to put it to death to to, to euthanize it. It it literally, like you could see its skeleton, and it was still swimming. They are evil, evil fish. Uh, So, but once you get, you know, goldfish up to about three to four inches, koi up to about three to four inches, they get almost armor plated. And they just don't give a damn, and then the bluegills leave them alone. But if you have a, you know, a couple big koi or a couple big goldfish in a system, you're not going to have an algae problem. You go look and you'll see them eating it as though like they're cattle grazing. So those are my thoughts on that. Let's take another one. This one on microgreens. And maybe we'll hear about something that David and John, John Dowie and I created in our heads one day called the microgreen mafia. Hey, Jack. This is Matt with com. I got a question. Actually, Kind of wondering how I should handle a situation. Uh, so I'm doing microgreens. I got them in a couple of farmer's markets. I'm doing pretty well in the farmer's markets. The problem I'm having is that um, some other producers, uh, leafy greens and, and produce, have started kind of seeing what I'm doing, and they're copying me. And they're undercutting me just a little bit. Now, didn't seem like it was much of an issue today, um because I have several varieties. I was out of black oil sunflower, and that seemed to be what the other vendors were capitalizing on. but I'm just not sure how to handle that um, Your advice would be appreciated. thank you. So your little honey hole that you had all to yourself was the only microgreens guy has kind of dried up because other people saw you selling stuff and said, hey, I can do that, too, and add it to my table, and they did. Damn, the free market it sucks, doesn't it? And this is actually what's great about the free market. It drives prices down, so it's good for the consumer. And the lower prices go, generally the larger markets get, and the better it is for the providers, assuming the providers can adapt and don't end up choked out by the other providers. Well, it's just a healthy dose of competition. Um, let's talk about some things you can do that really are better than just dropping your price or coming up with more and newer varieties. And the number one thing you can do is you can build your customer base and build contact with your customer base. As simple as putting down a notepad and saying, write down your name and email address and I will give you an extra ounce of this or I'll I'll take 5% off this time or something like that. So you can then begin to market to those people and pre-sell to those people. So you can say, you know, we're going to be at such and such, blah, pre-orders, accepted and then if you can get people pre-ordering and even pre-paying they're not buying from somebody else when they come to the market they're going to come to you and you have pre-orders so you can grow to your orders that would be one thing that i would look at doing expanding your market you know can you get into like a small mom and pop you know produce section of a store a uh, little bit at a time to trial it Build that up. Make sure that your packaging has name, contact information, website, etc., on it, so that your customers can engage with you. Make sure you're engaging with them in social media. Sit there and start building your Instagram up. When somebody buys some, take a picture of them if they're okay with it, and immediately throw it on their Instagram, uh, your Instagram, so that they they feel special, you know. Or do it with Facebook and Instagram both, because then they feel like, hey, this guy like put me up as a new customer. Uh, Try to be sticky with your customers. So, Because what I see mainly is the problem with farmer's markets is, since you have a guaranteed certain number of people that will show up every week, if you can carve out a little piece of that, you know you have business. Why is that a problem? Well, that's a problem because you get lazy, and you just expect it, and when somebody comes and challenges you, whatever they take from you hurts. And, I mean, the great thing about microgreens... Anybody can do it. The terrible thing is, anybody can do it, especially black wool, sunflower, and daikon. I mean, those are the two that anybody can do. They're fast-growing, fast turnover. They have very few problems. They're easy to clean. They're easy to package. And everybody likes them. Um, the, the, the 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 upside for the person who really specializes in microgreens is a lot of the other things aren't as easy. Things like Arugula. And broccoli are a little bit harder. But if you can add those varieties, you can start sending, selling either custom blends, like you can make up a burger blend. Really great thing to do. Or start making more of like, instead of everything crammed into one clamshell and blended together, you can separate it out. So it's like, you know, maybe four or six varieties. And they're all touching each other. They're not perfectly separated, but they kind of would package in there and it would present very well. And then so you can just mix it all together, or you know this is really good for this, this is really good for this, this is really good for that. And if you start adding colors that the other guys don't have, because color sells, you know, red sells in the world of microgreens, for instance. So those are some other things that you can do. You can also play their game. If they want to come after your shit, you can go after their shit. You know, maybe you start growing some more... Stuff a little bit longer into baby greens, so you can compete with that, and then maybe sell us the salad that's all blended together with the microgreens and the baby greens together in one. That's another way. To, I'm not saying to do these I'm saying these are the way to think is to, is to be unique and to be able to like. They can only chase you so far, where if you stay specialized into just that world, you can you can do a lot more than they can do. I, I think it would be one way to look at it, but. In the end, if you're doing something that's easy to do and you're successful, other people are going to do it too. But you also might find that some of that competition may wane because microgreens takes dedication. It takes dedication. Now, what is the microgreen mafia? So my buddy David and me were up at Liberty Forum and John Dowie uh, from, from Dowie Farms, who specializes in microgreens, sells to a bunch of restaurants. I mean, a buttload. Um, came down and to hang out with us, and it wanted us to go over and take a look at his grow his grow room, you know. So we went over. And we tried all kinds of great, awesome micro. This guy is good, man. He has been doing this for a few years now. And but when we're driving in the in thing, and he's from you know New England, he's kind of a big boxer type guy, and you know, and he's he starts telling us about these. He's like these guys, they're coming down from up north, and they're they're they're, they're sniffing around my restaurants and all. And the way he was saying, it, I'm like, oh god. This is a TV show called The Micro Green Mafia. It's got to be better than Amish Mafia, right? And uh, John Dowie's Don Dowie, right? Hey, them guys are coming down here messing around with my orders and my business, you know. And we started creating this whole list of characters because John's a smart business guy. And the reason I'm saying this is this is other ways you can leverage things. So he is not going to be out tapping trees and making maple syrup. But maple syrup is a big market. And a lot of these restaurants, you know, if you have locally produced maple syrup... They're interested. There's things they can do with that on their menus. So he teams up with this guy who makes the syrup, and John sells it for him. Now, with, with uh, farmer's markets, generally has to be produced. or certain rules to what can be there, but it doesn't necessarily have to be from you. So if you can expand your offering by taking in other people's products, even relabeling them as long as they meet the requirements of the market, locally produced, whatever, that would be another option. But we were going to name this guy Sticky Fingers. So we got Don Dowie and Sticky Fingers, and we're coming up with all these scenarios. And the sad thing is, when we started thinking about it, if we scripted it right, you could probably sell it to some cable network and put it on TV as a reality show. And it would be completely fake, but it would be funny as hell. You know, it really would. I think it would be better than Moonshiners, for sure. Anyway, that's the mind of Jack Spierko at work. It took me about 13 seconds from the time he said that, and he was being authentic with it. They're coming down here, and I'm like, oh, my God, I have this whole thing. <laughs> anyway, with that, let's take another one. This one on a follow-up from a prior question. The caller that had called in last week said he has a field that gets really muddy, and he has problems with drainage. Actually, I think it was a write-in show. Uh, but there had been some old French drainage that didn't work anymore, and when it rained, it just was a mud hole. And I would recommended some things. Here's some additional ideas on that from another listener, and I love when you guys help each other out. Hey, Jack. Um, as far as the guy with the with the with the flooding, and this goes in general for a lot of like land management questions. A commonly overlooked resource is the university extension ag office. So your your uh, state university ag office can do wonders in in helping out with stuff. I've done that here in Missouri. And then the other thing is your privately held land conservation specialist. They can also help in numerous ways. I've had them design things for me before, and they do it on the government money as a service to the citizens of whatever state. I can't speak for Oklahoma, but that's how we do things in Missouri. might be useful for that guy and, you know, probably some others. Hey, thanks. Enjoy the show. I mean, I don't have much to add to that. I guess the only thing I would say is that since the property was only three acres, I don't know how much help they would provide. Uh, Maybe just as much, maybe none at all. I'm not sure. And it it didn't sound like the property was zoned agricultural. That may have something or nothing to do with it. I I don't know. I've not really done a lot of that. But while you're at it, I mean, I guess the other people that I would recommend you contact, which might be one of the most benign uh, and useful organizations within the federal government, uh, is the NRCS, National Conservation Resource uh, Society. Those guys uh, are just awesome. And they have grants and all types of cool stuff, and and they may be able to help you as well design something. Because they are very concerned uh, with conservation on land without it having to be tens of millions of acres, right? Um, They actually have a high tunnel uh, grant system uh, where they actually increase the grant if you'll plant a cover crop within the tunnel. So it doesn't seem like a few anchors to be too small to at least maybe get some thoughts or advice from your local rep. So I would check with them as well. With that, let's take another one. This one on uh, sparkling water. We're getting a variety today, aren't we? Hey, Jack. My name is Nikki. Hey, I absolutely love your podcast. It is helping my husband and I do lots of great things on our homestead that we are starting. I have a quick question in regards to sparkling water. I have heard you... Um, mentioned sparkling water, and I was wondering what process do you use to make your water sparkling? Uh, we both love sparkling water and uh, would like to start making our own as we have filtered water from our wells and would love to not spend money on that anymore. So if you could please give us some feedback on that. We really appreciate it. All the best to you, and thank you for everything. So I'm, I'm just a big old cheater when it comes to sparkling water. I have a keg system uh, that can house up to, you know, it can actually house more, but it can, it can provide pressure to eight kegs, four Pepsi-style and four Coke-style kegs at one time, um, using, a, you know, kind of industrial-size uh, CO2 tank and uh, taps, And I, you know, make beer, and I make cider, and it's just so much easier, as my granddaughter sounds off in the background, it's just so much easier than bottling, and that's why I built it. And I realized, like, there'll probably never be a time that I have eight kegs on tap at the same time. It'll probably just never happen. I don't really make that much alcohol, and uh, so there'll always be a, a keg or three or four available, you know. And uh, so I was like, well, you're stupid, Jack. Why don't you just take a can and fill it up with water and stick it in there, and you have on-demand, unlimited sparkling water. I went, yeah, you should stop being stupid and do that. So I did that. So we just have, like, five. And the thing about it is if it starts to get low, it's not beer, right? I mean, you can just add more water to it, or you can just have two cans, and when one's empty, fill it up and, Start using the other one, so it's it's really easy for me. That and you're probably not going to build the keg system, just have sparkling water. But if you have a keg system, as and especially a multi-keg system, I want you to realize you have an unlimited supply of literally free uh sparkling water. I mean, I guess you have to pay to get the kegs filled, but you have or the, the CO2 filled, but you you got to do that anyway. And so, I you just don't think a keg of water uses that much. So, that's what I do. Uh, A lot of people are really enamored with a product called the SodaStream. I'm not a huge fan of it, um, but you can check into it. If I wanted sparkling water on demand, and I didn't want to go out and buy pre-bottled sparkling water, and we still do that from time to time because I'll let the keg run out and won't get it filled, and right now I have nothing in it because I ran out of CO2, and uh, my tank needs to be recertified because the date on it's expired, and I'm not sure where to get that done, and I'm mad about it, and I didn't want to buy a new tank yet. But, uh, so, you know, I'll buy P- Pellegrino or whatever. It, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but when I was a kid, my grandfather had an old school seltzer bottle. He was a highball drinker. And, uh, you just, it's a metal bottle. With a, It's like the Stooges used to spray each other in the face with, like that type of thing. And you fill it up with water, and you screw the top on it. And then there's these CO2 cartridges. They are not the same as one that you put like in a pellet gun, but they're not expensive. If you buy them in bulk, they're like 50 cents a piece. And uh, you put one of them in this thing, and you screw it, and it discharges that cartridge into the bottle. And then you have basically a spray bottle of carbonated water. There's a couple tricks to making these things work really good. Number one, fill the dadgum bottle with just a little bit of headspace. Um, I've seen people with negative reviews of several different ones of them on Amazon, and, well, I even tried only putting in like eight ounces. It barely carbonated at all. Well, that's because you're stupid, because that's all that space for that CO2 to exist, and it's not being forced into the water. Uh, and number two, cold water will take carbonation better than warm water. So if you pre-chill the water or at least put it in the refrigerator after you make it, it will do a lot better job of carbonating for you because the gas ain't got nowhere to go. And one of those cartridges holds a lot of CO2. And so if you do those two things, have some patience, make sure the water has time to chill – and make sure it's mostly full, you won't have any problems with just about any of them. That said, I found one that I really like. A buddy of mine that's kind of big into doing mixed drinks and stuff like that has this exact one. I looked it up, found it on Amazon for you. There's a link in the show notes where you can see it. But honestly, any of those will work, and that's probably what I would do. Uh I know I'm going to hear from some soda stream people that say, you know, you're crazy at the greatest thing. That's why I said you can check into it. But I would look at you know one of those three methods. If you're gonna do a keg system, then you have that. Uh make sure you have enough space, you have at least one extra uh keg so you can have water on demand. Uh seltzer bottle or going the uh the soda stream route, which again I personally wouldn't choose. Um I think seltzer bottles are cool. I remember this from my my grandfather, and I always wanted to do it, right, whenever it was empty because you you twist that thing in there and you discharge that CO2 in there, and it gets all cold and it freezes, and now it's like, yeah, it gets cold and it freezes. But when you're a little kid, you're like, wow, Uh, it looks cool and it's something that is multifunctional. Not only does it have sparkling water for whatever you want it for, but, you know, it's kind of cool if you do the mixed drink thing and stuff like that, especially if you have company over. So it's it's not a one-trick pony, I guess, is the way I look at it. With that, let's go ahead and uh, take another one, this one on cooking, specifically cookware, with it walks. Hey, Jack. My wife and I are in the market for a new walk for our kitchen. I know you have previously recommended... Uh, the Lodge cast iron walk. I wondered if that was still, if that would still be your recommendation. I know you've been talking recently about some of the carbon steel pans. So, that's the question. Is the Lodge cast iron skillet still what you would go with, or is there something better out there now? Thanks, man. So, I love, love, love my Lodge cast iron walk. So much so that I went and bought the mini cast iron walk. It fits right inside it so it doesn't take up additional space, which I like to use for deep-frying stuff uh, because it's small and uses so little bit of oil to be so deep. That said, the reason I love my giant cast-iron wok is I have a really great gas stove. And I have a burner on it that's called a Power Boiler Burner. And it has a center, really intense heat burner, and then it has a side, like, flaming wrap around secondary set of burners, and man, I can get that cast iron wok scorching hot on that burner. It is amazing how hot that thing gets, and the way it retains heat because it's cast iron is awesome. If I was pushing it with a standard gas stove, or an electric stove, or an induction stove, I don't know that I would like it as much. And I might really enjoy the rapid heat uh, take-up, of a thinner carbon steel walk better. Um I actually have a friend, I mentioned him earlier, I was talking about John named David, uh that was in the market and we looked at it together and he's been over here to cook playing. He has a guy does built for breakfast with me. And uh he ended up and, and kind of I agreed like it's probably the good thing to do, going with carbon steel walk. Because he doesn't have a stove like I have. He doesn't have a, you know, like basically it's almost like a turkey burner on your stove. And I, I think that for stir-frying that a lot of people might be happier with a carbon steel wok. So I would steer you in that direction unless you have like a badass industrial burner for your stove. And the other thing is it's nice that it's lighter weight. Uh, but I I, mean, I love cast iron. And kind of the, the perfect thing if somebody would make it would be a thin cast iron wok. Uh, I have yet to see one that I approve of. I saw one. It was crap, uh, but if i ever find a really good one i 'll buy it just to test it out for you guys. but I do think and I may have to go out and find the best carbon steel walk, spend my own money on it, test it, be sure of it, and do that just so I can have one to recommend because I do think if you don 't have a stove like mine and most people don't uh, you 're going to be happier with carbon steel. I'll tell you that I do not like, you know, Teflon-coated, stick-free walks. I have nothing against those types of pants. Because generally we're sautéing at lower temperatures in them and things like that. And all of the concerns about that type, those different types of coatings, not just Teflon, kind of go away. But when you're going to that scorching heat that you want out of a walk, I don't want those 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 coatings, and I've also found they don't hold up to the type of cooking you generally do in a walk. So carbon steel would be the way I would advise you to go. Uh, next up, we have a question, two-part question, final one of the day, on mead making and almanacs. Here we go. Hey, Jack, this is Don from the Confederate States of Inebria. Quick question, what do you think of the farmer's almanac? not sure if you've ever answered that one before. Do you think it's just a bunch of bunk or superstition? And another thing, why not do some small batch meadery for us, man? Sell that stuff to the public. It would be great. You could call it Jack's Meadarchy. Anyway, that would be super awesome. I mean, craft beers and meads are kicking up everywhere new meaderies. So uh, we'd love to see some of that, you know, sold to the public, even if you don't ever get into ducks again. Anyway, thanks for all you do. Thanks for your service, Hua. Take care. So I, I think there's actually a lot of utility in Farmer's Almanacs, and there's a lot of bullshit, too. Um, there's a lot of, like, little side articles and advertisements and stuff like that, and it makes, believe it or not, it makes <laughs> the, the, the Farmer's Almanac is one of the things I like to read during my morning office time, which is, you know, when you take your, your time in the bathroom, because it's... It's kind of interesting. Some of the stuff in there really kind of throws you back. And if you're, you know, a little bit older like I am, you grew up with older grandparents. You remember like the magazines and stuff that were around the house and uh, the bullshit advertised products and stuff in them. Or you remember Bazooka Joe. And if you saved up ten wrappers, you get, you know, uh, X-ray glasses. And I've not ever seen X-ray glasses in the almanac, but it's the kind of stuff that kind of shows up there that I actually, you know, I'm not going to buy it or order it, but I kind of, I kind of enjoy it. Uh, it just just kind of nostalgic, I guess, you know, kind of funny thing. Um, it, the general weather predictions are generally right because they're so general, and they follow the El, Nina, El Nino La Niña pattern uh, that is a real m- uh, macro large scale weather pattern affecting North America. So they're so general that they're generally right. Uh, The moon phases and things like that and advice on fishing and planting and everything else are pretty good. But it's not because it's hocus pocus. It's because, you know, spring is the time to plant most stuff. You know, Uh, the recommendations based on your last frost date and stuff like that are solid because that's just based on weather data. Um, So overall, I think they're they're kind of fun. If you're talking actual paper copies of them, they have some entertaining reading in them. Uh, They have some complete bullshit in them, too. But I think all of that makes it fun. Um, And, you know, like the stuff that's like, you know, good days for fishing. The moon has a pretty big impact on fishing, especially if you're just the kind of guy that just throws a line in and hopes. So there's some utility there as well. But overall, I don't need one in my life. And there's years I buy, there's like two main brands, I guess, that you find at stores. usually they're at Tractor Supply up front. And there's years I buy both of them, and there's years I don't buy either one of them. And I don't really miss them when I don't have them. So that gives you that. Now on mead making, um, I actually would be very open not to creating my own meadery. I do not have the time... You know, there's an old saying, that man cannot serve two masters. And I think when it comes to really running a business, it's very difficult to try to run more than one business. It's difficult to even be a partner in more than one business. You're going to give one your all, and you're going to give the other not enough in general. There are people that can do it. The only way I was ever able to really do it was when I was working with Neil Franklin And all the businesses were in the same building, and all the businesses had employees. And I was serving as a C-level officer in three different companies at the same time. And because the job was one of delegation, dictation, policy evaluation, policy setting, and because everybody was in one place together, and I could go see everybody, I was able to do that. It still wasn't easy, but... um, It wouldn't be like running a survival podcast in Jack's Meadery. What I would be very open to is a label with a meadery. If I could find a small meadery in Texas, there would be some challenges, though. I, I, I never really deeply looked into it, but I listened to enough mead podcasts with commercial producers to understand what it takes to do it. And One of the things is they have to be very tight control with their production and the you know how is this going to attenuate? What alcohol volume? And as that changes, you know what they can do within the regs of their state changes, and they have to every time. They can't just say you know what next month we're going to put out a, a, an apple ginger mead. They actually have to send something new mead. I don't know how it is in Texas, but in like some of the states I was listening to, the guy from Moonlight Meadery up in New Hampshire, I think, was like I have to completely do a whole new set of paperwork and submit it to the. Alcohol board or whatever to be able to put that mead out. And if I ever change anything, I have to resubmit it. Or if you're a, v- a vintner, if you're just a vineyard and you make wine, it's a red wine. You put the label on it, you put the alcohol volume on it, and you go out the door with it. And if it changes, so what? You're, you're like it's not. And that's why a lot of mead sucks, by the way, from larger producers. Because they're not really selling it as meat. They might even call it a meat on the label, but they would call it a mead the way that you know, uh, some like uh, there's a uh, gnarly head uh, cabernet and a gnarly head zinfandel. A gnarly head is a brand name, but it's also kind of a label name, right? Because of these old gnarly grapevines on at this vineyard. Uh, so was, it's mead, but it would actually the official title of it is honey wine which means it's really wine with honey added to it and it's kind of a loophole some of the vineyards have kind of crawled through to be able to make this god-awful sweet sticky crap that's not really mead that's ruined people's opinions of mead on top of all this Even the real meaderies that are making real mead, in general, I am not a fan. Not all of them, but in general, they don't taste like mead. They taste like sweetened fruit wines. They're sweet, and that is just so. I would have to find a meadery that would be willing to make my kind of mead, that would jump through the hoops to get it approved, and then stick to my kind of mead. I would love to bring out Jack's Three Flowers blend as my flagship meat. I don't think there's anything else like it on the planet. I think it wins people over who have said, I don't like meat, it's too sweet. I don't like meat, it's this. I, you, they try to go, oh my God. And it's like Sam Adams. You have to market it kind of like Sam Adams does. Half the people that drink this will think it sucks. They don't do that anymore because the craft brew revolution hit, and people like now expect flavor in their beer. But when Sam Adams kind of first started at the beginning of, of the, the whole openness to new types of beer, they actually marketed it like, you you might hate this. Like, they, they would have these, I remember the one time I was on an airplane, I was reading some magazine, and it wasn't the airline magazine, it was a magazine I picked up at the airport, and uh, they had uh, they, like this these, these two guys, and the one guy was like really freaking happy with his glass of beer, and the other guy looked like he was about to puke, and it's like, half of everybody hates our beer, the other half loves it. Find out which half you're in. Like, I think you'd have to kind of market it a little bit that way, like maybe not that severe. But it worked for Sam Adams, right? Um, because it does have kind of a bitter quality to it in, in a very different way than beers do. Uh, I would love to do that. I have some other needs that I really would like to talk to somebody about and see if we could do that. But the only way I would be able to do this, I would have to basically say, I'll formulate it, I'll bring it to you, we'll talk about it, if we can agree to it, we'll come up with a label, I'll help promote it. And it has to be, when I taste your product, it has to taste like my product. It can't be sweet when it's supposed to be dry, right? We can't do that. Um, And I don't know if all of my micro, you know, batches of a gallon will translate well up. And I don't know how much expense there would be in ingredients, even at scale. I mean, I make meads that are fairly expensive to make. Um, I use good honey, you know. Uh, I don't use the greatest honey in the world, but I use good honey. And I use expensive adjuncts. You know, when you look at Three Flowers Blend, uh, you're looking at a quarter cup of each one of the flowers. When you're talking about a commercial product, it it can get expensive. It's kind of like you can do things boutique at a small scale. But maybe there's nothing wrong with that. Maybe there's nothing wrong with that, you know. Maybe it's this is a twenty-five dollar bottle of meat. You don't want it, don't buy it. I don't know. You know, it, it, and that might actually sell better. Um, there are nine dollar bottles of wine, and there are ninety dollar bottles of wine. I've enjoyed both, um, and usually the ninety bottle ninety dollar bottle of wine doesn't command ninety bucks. But I have actually found there's a lot of wines in the twenty to forty dollar range. Did are really a step above the, the $10 to $12 bottles. They, they, you know, they don't get too full of themselves, but they're like, hey, we put more time, effort, and money into this. We have to charge more for it to produce a product like this. Uh, and that Three Flowers blend ages beautifully. So I think it could be a good thing, but I can't do it on my own. I would need a partner who basically is a full-scale operating meadery that would be willing to work with me on private label. If that's you, even if you're not in the state of Texas and you'd like to talk to me about it, get in touch with me because we can make that happen. And, you know, I can't give you, you know, advertising promotion quality of something even like Shiner Beer or Yingling Beer, relatively small operations. I don't have that kind of influence. But, you know, out of almost 200,000 people a day listening, even just mail order sales, I think we could drive some sales sales. So if somebody's out there that's in the business that would like to do it, or if you know someone who might be open to it, put them in touch with me. You know how to get a hold of me. It's not hard. I do have one of the most well-known email addresses on planet Earth. Was, like, what's your email? It's like, dude, you don't know me. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to tell you if you have to ask me Right? what well, my email is. Anyway, with that, let's talk about one of the ways you can help support this show, and that is to join the Member Support Brigade. And right now is a great time because of Travis the Vegan Troll. I'm running the week-long sale that ends on Saturday. I'm going to run it through Saturday till the end of Close of Business Saturday night, midnight Central Standard Time. Bacon. You use the discount code BACON and you get the $50 membership for $25, and that membership rate locks in for life as long as you maintain your account. Travis the Vegan Troll, His he's accounted for almost 100 extra pounds of bacon eaten this week. I hope he feels good about it with his vegan trolling. Uh, because here's the deal. If you take this sale, I can't enforce this, obviously, but on your honor, I ask that within one week of the sale, you eat an extra pound of bacon, and that you give a gift of bacon to a friend. If you're not sure what to do for the gift, hold out for tomorrow's Tea spaz item of the day. I have a great gift of bacon for your friends and family, and for your tummy as well. Anyway, the bacon sale, 25 bucks. And uh, right now, I think we're going to have, we have some plans for this sale money. Because we're going to go on vacation. Involves bacon sandwiches and boats. All for Travis. So this is going to be fun. You, if you are not a member yet, you want to be part of this. You're go- we're going to have fun with this. We are trolling the troll with bacon. And it's, it's not being done maliciously or evilly or even childlike. It's just being done in good fun. Because this guy's been a pain in the ass for a year. And uh, it's, it's just kind of fun to say, hey, you know, I look at this the same way as like when the PETA protesters used to come to this place called s and Sausage and Meat. Yeah, they played up the s thing pretty hard, but it was just really a great place to go get food. In, in California, in San Diego, PETA would come and protest. And whenever the PETA came in protest, they gave everybody that was there free bacon. So by protesting, you've accounted for more meat consumption. And the protest stopped. See, that's what we're doing here. Next up, of course, is the t item of the day, or any of your online shopping can be done at TSPAZ.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. And uh, every day I have a featured item. I have everything I've ever reviewed categorized for you, so you can see the garden stuff, the gun stuff, you name it, bags, gadgets, personal items, everything's there. Remember, if it's at TSPAZ, I own it. I use it, I spent my money on it, or I wouldn't recommend that you do the same. I I believe in that level of integrity. The Survival Podcast, I really hope that those of you that have followed me for any length of time, that if somebody said to you, what is the first thing you think of from a brand standpoint for Survival Podcast, I hope it's something like integrity, because that is my brand. That if I recommend it, I use it, it's worth your money, or I I wouldn't ask you to spend your money on it. Today I'm I'm bringing finally the the sixth item in my fertility program to you. I brought you the iron and zinc supplement yesterday for your plants. Today I have the calcium-magnesium plant food that I use. It's a product called Earth Juice by Hydro Organics. And it is the best bang for the buck CalMag supplement I have found. A big part of why is it is a 3% calcium, 1% magnesium. And if you look at most of the other liquid CalMag products, they're more in the in order of 1% to 2% calcium and about 6 tenths of a percent of magnesium to a half percent of magnesium. There's nothing wrong with that other than they cost all about the same and you have to use more of theirs to get the same result. So overall, it costs more. So most of the products in this world are good because if they're not, they don't last long. To tell you the truth, the way I found the magnesium, uh, calcium, iron, and zinc products that I use is I looked at what the people that grow cannabis and, and, and hydroponic systems are using. And if you don't do a good job, those people don't buy your shit no more. That's just the way that it works. So most of the products that have been around for a while that do this supplementation are good. I look for the ones that are the best value and stick with an organic uh, uh, situation with nothing in there that you don't want. And with calcium and magnesium, it's one of the most important things you can consider supplementing in your gardens. If you don't have any deficiencies, that's great. That's fine. But what you'll find is most people, their big struggle is not with acidic soil. It is with alkaline soil. The more alkaline soil, the more difficult it is for your plant to absorb calcium and magnesium. So people will not even consider that it's a calcium problem because they're like, why well, you supplement calcium in powdered form? I put an eggshell in the hole when I planted my tomato plant. So that's what it said to do on the internet. So I don't know why I have Blossom and Rob, but it can't be a calcium deficiency. There's two problems. Number one, the plant and human both cannot use or absorb calcium in the absence of magnesium, and it cannot use and absorb and function uh, magnesium metabolically without the calcium. They have to both be there. So if you're supplementing one and not the other, and you have a deficiency in the other, it doesn't do no good. The other thing is, both of them, the plants, specifically the calcium, have difficulty absorbing and metabolizing in alkaline environments. So you'll generally see people move things to like a 5.5 to 6.5 pH when they're doing calcium-magnesium supplementation, specifically in the pot-growing world, which again is where you get the best information about this type of product, even if you have no desire to grow cannabis, because those guys know. All right. Um, so, when you use a product like this, you have the ability to feed it as a foliar feed, which we've talked about a lot, which means spraying it directly onto the plants. So, then it doesn't matter that your soil's alkaline. Also, if you do a soil drench with it, since it is a liquid form, it immediately gets absorbed by the plant, used by the plant, and it, the plants don't need a lot of calcium or magnesium, just a little bit. A little bit goes a long way, so it's a very affordable product to use. Um, but if you are foliar feeding or soil drenching it and you are using garret juice, which I recommend is the cornerstone of all this stuff. Garrett juice has apple cider vinegar in it, so it's already slightly acidified. If you don't have garret juice in it, I recommend that you put a couple drops, just a couple drops, per gallon of apple cider vinegar to move the pH a little bit to the acidic. Just while the plant is engaging with the substance. So that'll help. And that's true if you're doing foliar or soil drench. I give a complete breakdown of how I use this stuff in the review today. Um, again, it's called Hydro Organics CalMag Plant Food. Um, the bad news. When I looked at this item today, they only had like a dozen or something like that left in stock. They're going to sell out today just for me featuring them. I do have a second product recommended as a, as a backup in the P.S. It's by a company called Bloom City. It's a CalMag supplement. It's a very good supplement. But it's exactly the thing I said. It's you know 2% versus 3% uh, calcium, and it's 6 tenths of a percent versus 1 full percent magnesium. So to get the same effect, you've got to use a little bit more. So you can wait for the other one to come back in the stock, or you can get this one if you need it right away. If you have deficiencies in your plants that look like the types of deficiencies I describe in this article, get the other product. Go down to your local store and get a CalMag product. Just make sure it's liquid so it's immediately available. Same with the iron and zinc. The Liquinox I recommended yesterday, the best on the market I can find or I would buy something else. Um, but if you get a chelated liquid iron, or, um, liquid iron and zinc product, your plant will be able to absorb it. I look, again, best value, best reputation. And the people I want the best reputation from in the world of supplemental minerals for your plants, cannabis growers, because they got a lot on the line. It's a lot on the line for them, so they care about the best. And that's the two that I've found. Uh, again, the Liquinox on the Iron Zinc world and the, uh, the Hydro Organics on the uh, CalMag world. You can find now, uh, under the tag Fertility on the site, all six of the products I recommend is your fertility program. And, guys, I cannot tell you, the people that have done it, when I hear back, I'm like, oh, my God, I have so much. I don't know what to do. There's too much this year. And that's how powerful this stuff is. There's a few other things I do with some azomite and green sand. We'll probably do a show someday where I'll break down the whole thing. Uh, as a standalone topic. I think it's probably time we've done that, and we haven't before. Uh, But if you just use these products the way that they're described, your life will be better as a gardener and a grower. All right. So, with that, let's go to today's song. Today's song is by Bob Seger. It's called The Highway. And uh, this is actually not one of my favorite Bob Seger songs from a sound standpoint. It's, uh... I don't know. It's its, it's just probably not the best-sounding song that he's ever done. That's probably because, like all of us, Bob's getting older, and as you get older as a musician, you don't quite have it the way you did when you were younger. this song's pretty new. I think it was released in 2017, if I remember right. I do love the words to the song and the concept of this song. And it's really about how the highway, the road, driving represents freedom to people. And I, you know, it makes me think especially when I was a teenager, you know, and I got my first busted ass car, man. I had this uh, Grand Prix with a 455 in it, quad Rochester quadric carburetor. Paid 250 bucks for it I made by pulling copper out of old motors that were thrown away up on the mountain and uh, that beat-up old car was freedom for me. And it was freedom for the typical stuff that it's for a kid. You go out on dates with it. You can cart your friends around. You can drive to school instead of take a bus. But it was also like on a weekend getting out and even just going out fishing or something and driving down a windy road faster than you should in a car like that uh, or actually taking longer road trips. When I got out of the Army, after I got off my walk off the Appalachian Trail, I bought this little Busted a Ford Mustang too. I guess I have some for mus. Uh, busted cars, and I drove that all the way down here to Texas. Radio blaring the hallway, and there is something about that, and it's 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 really something that is unique to modern times with cars. Um, I'm sure that people felt good riding a horse when that's what was the only option, and some people still like doing it. But you know, you couldn't jam out to your radio on a horse, right? They didn't have a radio back then. and um, I also wonder, is this particular era coming to an end? As we move into the world of autonomous vehicles, and we're going to, no matter what anybody says, and maybe it'll take longer than some of us think, maybe we're still looking at another 15 years before most cars are self-driving, but we're not looking at 50, guys. We're just not. Um, we're going to have kids, kids that are born right now, that by the time they're old enough to drive a car, aren't going to have to. And they may never choose to. And it may get difficult to even drive a car in 20 to 25 years. There may not be many of them left. You may have to have special operator's permits beyond the driver's license we have today because you're the human amongst the machines that are so much better, smarter, and uh, better reacting than you, and they obey... The thing is, the machines will obey the rules. If the speed limit is 65, the machine will not exceed the speed limit. If the distance between the vehicles is supposed to be 10 car lengths, the machine will use LiDAR and maintain the... So when you get in the middle of that, you screw it up, and when the majority of your machines... They may, it may be more difficult. And anything that happens eventually passes. There was a time when every child in America, by the time they were probably 10 to 12 years old, knew how to to control a horse and probably run a horse and buggy. How many of us know how to do that today? And it came and it went. And if driving disappears as this form of freedom, what will replace it? What will ever give us that feeling again? Will future generations never know it? I don't know. Because you'll have the freedom of movement, but there's a total difference between sitting on a train, let's say, because that's a lot what an autonomous vehicle is going to be like, sitting in a little train, and getting behind the wheel, feeling the power of that vehicle, letting the horses out once in a while, taking the turns just a little faster than you should. Not really dangerous, but just, just feel those tires pull a little bit. Turn that radio up. Put those windows down on that back road. Take that pickup truck down that gravel road. So part of me, part of me feels like even though I think the autonomous car will take over, there will always be a place, at least as long as those of us who were alive when it was the common thing to do are around for that old pickup truck or that busted-ass old car. With that has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Time's get to tough for even if they don't.